Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hello and welcome to Article 19. My name is Marty Malloy, Chief of Staff and Catalyst at Tamman, and I am the host for our conversation today. I am joined, and I'm so excited by this, by a previous podcast guest, my colleague, and now I'm happy to say co-host for Article 19, Nimit Carr. Hello, Nimit. Hello, Marty. I'm so glad that you're here. This podcast would not have been possible without you today. Our guest today, who you brought to us, is Kristen Waitaki. Kristen is a multifaceted professional with many years of experience in program management, administration, teaching, writing, in a wide variety of academic settings. She is a passionate advocate and skilled communicator, and she has a track record of success in meeting the needs of faculty, students, team members, and partners. Fake fact about Kristen, the song Bad Reputation by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts is really about her. I want to give a little context for our conversation today. This podcast is a call for others to join us in a bigger conversation around the ADA, digital accessibility, and access to information. At Tamman, we are working to build the inclusive web every day, but to do that, we need all of us working together and learning together. Thanks for listening to Article 19, and let's get this conversation started. So let me formally bring in our guest, Kristen. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me, Marty. And as I was saying earlier, if uh, bad reputation ruins the rest of my career life, I expect some compensation. But thank you. <laughs> that is exactly right. It did okay for Joan. So I don't know. Yeah, it's not yeah, quite the same fine. field, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> We're so glad that you're here. Can you tell the listening audience a little bit about you, your background, orient us to you? Well, I am a teacher. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. I am a mother, a wife, or a partner, depending on who you ask, in the marriage world. And I happen to be blind. And I've been blind since I was born. So that's been my world for my whole life. That's amazing. And if you don't mind my asking, how old are your kids? They are 10, 5, and 2 right now. And I don't know, when the podcast comes out, they might be 11, 6, and 3, but you know, somewhere <laughs> in there. <laughs> that is a very busy life that you have, being a mother, a spouse, a teacher, a mentor, an advocate, everything that you are. I can't wait to dive into all of it. So let's start with the teacher and the mentor as you are, someone who can write curriculum, someone who teaches, someone who's done a lot of this in the education space. Can you tell me a little bit more about that work and your students? Yeah, I teach in many ways. So I'm a content editor right now for a program called the College Success Program. And in that role, I am either developing or creating resources for college students who are blind or have low vision. And in that space, it's really important and in fact critical to address these students directly. And that seems like a pretty small thing. But when I first started, most of the resources were directed to parents or professionals, and there wasn't that much material directed to the students themselves. So that's been my 
guiding star, I guess. You know, the thing that I live by is making sure that whoever is the audience is actually at the center and that disabilities are actually at the center of things. And then right now I'm also teaching for students who are blind through a small New Jersey-based company called Vista's Education Partners, run by a wonderful teacher and advocate who lives right here in Highland Park. And she sends teachers directly into school districts. And so they work with the students several hours a week and help them to achieve their goals. So that's the teaching I do. I'm curious, you've been doing this now for many, many years. This isn't new to you, but when you were first getting started, and I'm going to brag about you since you haven't mentioned it yet, you don't have just your bachelor's degree from an amazing and elite institution. You don't have just one master's degree. How many master's degrees do you have? (laughs) So I have three master's degrees. I have one in teaching gifted students, one in teaching students who are blind or have low vision, and then one in creative writing and fiction. It is an ill-advised path filled (laughs) with much debt and much joy in learning, and I don't know that I'd recommend it to anyone, but I loved it. And I aspire to earn a doctorate someday. The time hasn't happened yet, but someday it will come. Sure, sure. I mean, you're a little bit busy with this <laughs> yeah. and everything yeah. else going on. But I'm curious then, how much of your own journey and your own pathway do you find now in your teaching? You know, the struggles, the opportunities, the excitement. Is there a direct link or is it separate? Is it one is a professional, one was as a student, and then neither of the two shall meet? That's such a profound question. I feel like I could answer it either way. So, you know, I I think learning as a blind student prepared me for teaching them. But at the same time, you know, everyone's struggles and joys and challenges and aspirations are so individual. I work with people, except for when I write resources, but when I teach people, I teach one-on-one and every single person is unique and their journey is unique. So in some ways, when you meet a new person, you are starting all over again. That's amazing. So when you meet a new person, you mentioned this, and Nimit, I want to try to bring you into the conversation a little bit here intentionally, but Nimit first introduced you to Tamin as her mentor and I'd like to talk a little bit about what that means to you when you mentor students beyond just teaching them. What does it mean to be a mentor for you? That's a great question. So I started out by mentoring students through a program called New Jersey EDGE. EDGE is an acronym. The the blindness world loves acronyms like everyone else, and it stands for Employment, Development, Guidance, Engagement. And Nimit was one of my first students in that program. I also mentor for the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and I'm excited about both of those mentorship opportunities. The AWP mentorship is not specifically about disability or blindness or employment. So that was, in a way, you know, a step to the side. But at the same time, I've been working with writers with disabilities. So I feel like right at home in that space. But in both of those programs, I really hope that mentorship is a meeting of the minds, you know, that Latin root of mentor. And what I mean by that is almost trying to figure out what a student is thinking about 
the challenges that they're having and really addressing the thoughts that they have. Yep. And it, does, it does not always work. I mean, mentors are assigned in programs like this. And I feel like that's a little bit different from when I was seeking more mentorship because I reached out and met mentors and it was sort of developed organically and naturally. And it was not like this person is your mentor. And I feel like that's a little bit different now with the students who are coming up. And mostly that's good. I think giving students access to a mind meter is crucial, but because they're assigned, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work that way. But, but you know, in an ideal mentorship relationship, I think, you know, really getting into what a student is thinking about as they grow and change and mature is crucial. So Nimit, as you think about having been mentored by Kristen, what are some of the responsibilities of being a mentee? So the biggest responsibility of being a mentee is keeping really good communication line because when you are assigned a mentor or when you find a mentor, either path, it is a way for you to have an access to an individual who can empathize with your experience or has either walked on your shoes before. And it's a network for you to go to for advice or even just normal life talk and just have a conversation. Now, a person who can understand because a lot of the time, some of the challenges that people with disabilities can face in daily life. Sometimes not many people understand and that so not many people can always understand those experiences. So having a mentor who can empathize with and understand what you're going through and you can talk to and get the advice very useful. I always tell incoming high school students who are going through the New Jersey Edge program or similar programs right now is use all of the resources you have because as a high school student, we already have any student regardless of disability or not. We are already at a stage where everything is overwhelming for students and like having to talk to someone can sometimes be like oh I have to do that too so I always tell students like yes it might be like a responsibility for you to attend meetings and like have the conversation and tell about yourself and give updates but in reality I look back to those years when I was in high school and was a part of that programs and similar programs and look back to all of the resources that I was provided, I think are the resources that shaped me today to who I am and gave me the necessary skills for inclusion and mainstream access. That's amazing. In other words, good job, Kristen. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I always feel that the people get the ideas of mentorship. A mentor is not a god, you know, and yes. they, they are coming <laughs> at no. things with their own personal biases and, and their experiences and also their limitations. And so it is much more helpful for a mentor to hear, okay, that idea might be good, but it doesn't work for my situation and here's why, then be like, okay, I'll do it. And then no, they didn't, or people aren't being authentic with you about how they're feeling. And I think I learned so much from my mentees about life and you know technology what's going on what's coming and that's a really valuable gift for a mentor 
Yeah, that's where communication comes in because having a communication is very crucial. These days, as Kristen said, mentors are typically assigned. So like the first connection might not happen right away. That's where you can go to the program and say, maybe I can benefit from another mentor where sometimes you just don't have that connection that in the first place, like I did with Kristen. So in that case, either way, Communication is the biggest responsibility for any mentee, I think. So you both bring up communication. You sort of bring up connection, Nimit. I'm curious Mm -hmm. how or if things have changed because of COVID. I'm making the assumption that the two of you, when, Kristen, you were really mentoring a younger Nimit, that that was happening in person. One, is that assumption correct? Two, sort of. <laughs> has, it, has it changed? I mean, so both from a mentor-mentee relationship, as well as from an educator perspective, as more of this has gone online and been sort of forced online, we're doing this podcast in four different places. Is something lost in that or is actually something gained? I'm curious what your thoughts are around all that. So Edge was a pretty virtual program, except for the group events where, yeah, where people met and I didn't even do the high school program. So there were like maybe two or three events a year where people got together in person and that was like a big group. And then mentorship mostly occurred over the phone. And Nimit and I met a few extra times in person due to her living near my mom's house. So we ended up meeting, you know, geographically. And we also send WhatsApp messages, these like long voicemail messages to each (laughs) other. And there's something about hearing people's voices where they have a long time to just spill whatever's going on and you know dwell on it in their speech and then you know the other person comes back with their response you know it's a combination of being somewhat spontaneous and still being able to think about what you want to say that's really neat in that mentorship context but most of us who are blind are not used to living near other blind people we're very comfortable Mm. with the virtual space so covid certainly intensified that i haven't seen Nimit in person since 2019, but, you know, at the same time, we make it work. It almost sounds like letter writing, you know, as you describe the long, I mean, (laughs) it's a lost art. Yeah, and, it is. You know, and we're making we're making a comeback. Yeah, <laughs> it always makes me sad about the lost art. Like I, I really value the books of letters mm. from authors, and when people say, "Oh, letter writing is a lost art," start writing letters, and like when people wrote me letters, I couldn't read them. Like, you know, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> there, there was a problem with the lost art. We're trying to fix it. But Nimit, I interrupted you. You were going to talk, so please. No worries. Yeah, I agree. This question actually made me rethink my time again. So in high school when I was in the high school edge program I actually did not meet you that often like I only met you in the college program college program okay so there was like transitioning college and at my Cameron County associates years mostly and then we just continued so I think most of the programs happened before pandemic they were 
in-person for group events, but most of the actual one-on-one mentorship actually did happen online via phone calls mostly. And there got to a point where sometimes having a phone call was a little bit conflicting with schedule. So that's where we came up with WhatsApp. And I think we just continued. Even though I currently don't have like an official mentor, I graduated from that program at 22 years old. That's the highest the state would take in those programs but we still continue the conversations online even though it's like monthly or bi-monthly basis but definitely continues today well that's when the relationship really it did click and the the meeting of the minds really did work i appreciate that i think that's amazing that you two are still as connected and relying on each other because i think when that mentor mentee relationships i know in my own mentor mentee relationships they are ongoing there is no time limit so i appreciate that so i want to turn the conversation a little bit kind of back to education, if I may. So Kristen, as an educator and a curriculum builder, I'm really curious how you approach accessibility and whether or not that is something that supersedes content or is interwoven as part of the content. I'm curious if you think intentionally. I have two different answers to that. So as a curriculum builder, my primary focus was on the content. Is the article telling a good story? Is it communicating its message clearly? Does it all make sense on a sentence level, paragraph level, and an article? That kind of thing. And you know, it's thrown into the platform and boom, and, you know, we test the platform, it's accessible. So they are very separate journeys in a way. We do think about content in the sense of not having videos without transcripts or, you know, we not having visual videos, but in, in a way we don't really think visually anyway when we're creating right. these things. So maybe the accessibility is just sort of organic to what we're doing. As a teacher, my role is a little different because I am going into students' lives and making sure that all of the things they are doing are accessible to them. So I'm occasionally connecting with teachers who are working with the students in the general education setting to make sure that they understand the accessibility and how to make an assignment meaningful for a student. If I'm creating content It's about teaching the student a specific skill or maybe helping them to do informational interviewing or going over braille contractions. So in that context, probably the accessibility is the most important aspect of what I'm doing. I am doing a lot of head nodding, by the way, just to let you know, because I think a lot of what you're saying is really resonating. You just mentioned braille contractions. Yes. And I had read something somewhere, this is a terrible question because I haven't researched it at all, but I'm going to go with it anyway, that there's a significant percentage of individuals who are blind that do not read Braille. What say you about Braille and blindness and education and things like that? Yeah, well, since I didn't have time to research the answer, I'm just going to put that <laughs> disclaimer is, This in is there. the best kind of dinner uh, conversation, <laughs> right? We just kind of just go off the cuff. Like, well, we're making up facts um, as we go. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to be a misinformation spreader <laughs> course, yeah. at all. So just throw that disclaimer in there. So, but it's something like 30 to 40% of blind adults have gainful employment, which I believe means employment that fits their education and credentials and life experiences. And of those, something like 90% of them are Braille readers. And then, yeah, and like 10% of people are learning Braille. So there are so many factors. I mean, one is just all of the technology and, you know, the 
screen reading software, which has made life very convenient. And certainly I use it daily, so I'm not going to knock that. But sometimes people use that as a primary method of reading and haven't been exposed to Braille. And then it's also very much cheaper to get a software program than it is to get a Braille display. There are changes in that, but you know, if you want to keep up with the tech, it's usually cheaper to get a screen reader than it is to get a Braille display. And that's been an unfortunate hit for Braille, I think. But there's something about Braille that you know, learning it. And this, again, is a generalization and does not apply to every single person. But Braille enables people who don't have access to print to really understand the shape of language, the structure of it, how sentences are formed, how words are spelled. And I feel like I should really just send you a New York Times article to (laughs) get to absorb the rest of it. But there's something really special about having the tools of language being given to you in that way. So it's not usually quite the same with audio unless you put in the work to break things down by character words and, you know, all the time, which people don't always do. Sure. So we're going to talk about employment in a little bit, but that correlation is astounding. And even from a 30 second Google search, it seems like you're on there with a correlation of Braille literacy and employment. Employment. What is the responsibility then as an employer that I should have a at least rudimentary understanding of Braille and the assistive tech that's related to Braille? That's an excellent question. I mean, I think by the time people get to employment, they've either learned Braille or they haven't. People can certainly learn Braille as adults, and they do. But it is slower and a lot harder. Like any language. Yeah, I, like yeah. any language. <laughs> Braille is across all languages. It's not a language. It's a writing system. But right. it is, you know, when you read with your fingers when you're a small child, you're very sensitive to those differences. If you are older, it just takes a lot more effort to learn that same thing. And so if people come into the employment space and they're fully capable employees and they're not using Braille, then that shouldn't really reflect badly on them. They just didn't learn it and they've gotten around other tools. So I think in the education space, there are a lot of difficult conversations about, you know, when do people learn Braille? And traditionally, it was people who couldn't see at all or who maybe could only see a little but clearly couldn't read print. But if people could read print, then people were told, okay, you read print, so you can read it. And even if it was slower or really hard, it was like, okay, but you're still a print reader. So I think that is changing now in the education space and people are looking at, well, what's going to be the best method? Even though the student can struggle through the letters now, is that struggle going to work when they have lots more to read or listen to or just keep up with? Is that person's vision going to change or deteriorate? Or is there a possibility that that would happen? You know, and then if either of those things are true, then Braille is something that they should be learning, even if they're not using it for everything right away. So it's a conversation for sure in the education space. But I think on the employment side, you know, maybe just making sure that if people want a Braille display to do their job and they feel like, you know, hey, I'm a pretty good listener and I can listen to this document that you've just sent me, but it'd be really great if I I could actually read it, but the Braille display is $6,000 and the screen reader is 1000 You know, maybe just thinking about, well, how 
can this worker be comfortable? You know, would a braille display be useful for more than one person? Or, you know, say this person were to move on, I could still save it and use it in the future. Maybe just looking into all of the tech options and thinking about the benefits of all of them, even if they cost more. Absolutely. Kind of sticking in this assistive tech space, is there a piece of assistive tech that you really want to recommend that you say this is absolutely essential for when you're working with your students? No, because by the time I recommend it, something else will come out. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And also, you know, quite seriously, like my students all have newer Braille displays than I do. I still have a Braille Note Apex. Nimit, you probably know about this, but they're like 10 years old at this point. Mine is still working. And so I'm going to use it until the thing dies. I am knocking on wood because it's going to die any day now. But, you know, that's another like four to six thousand dollars to get a new display. Yes, I use the old tech right now, but my students use the newer tech and I'm happy about that. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> that she needs newer tech. Oh no. All right. Well, I'm way off script here, but I'm really interested in this. That are there foundations, are there grants, are there programs that assist maybe not, you know, professionals making their way in the world and, and have a significant income or living wage and whatnot, but are there programs and foundations that assist with getting assistive tech into the hands of children and others that need it? Yeah. Well, Right now, honestly, mostly the best route would be to go through your state's commission for the blind or, you know, different states. Voc Rehab. Yeah, Voc Rehab. Sure. They will provide technology. They'll do technology assessments. The sooner you know that you need it, the sooner you should make that phone call because sometimes they can take a while for many reasons. But that's really the best way to get started up until when you're working is to just contact your state organization. So I want to dive into advocacy for a minute while I have you here. I just got back from ADA Con in Baltimore this week, and I had the opportunity to hear a speech by Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt. She is the new head of the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. And in her talk, she talked about her own educational journey, and that led those of us who were listening, a, a group of us, to talk not only about education, but also employment. And I promise we're going to get back to employment on this. I'd really like to hear some of your perspective on the gaps and the opportunities to improve and deepen educational practices for those living with disabilities, but specifically in the blind community. I'd like to start with the gaps. I mean, what are some of the gaps in expertise of professionals at all levels of the educational spectrum from the primary, secondary, and higher ed areas? Wow, to summarize all the gaps. Not all the gaps, like yeah. Whatever sentences. comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One gap that I am teaching in at the moment is the concept of the special education diploma. It is a noble concept. It was developed because there are students who, for whatever reason, will not master grade level standards, will not pass grade level expectations and therefore will not genuinely qualify for what's called a standard diploma. So sometimes these students will go to school, you know, even longer than their peers, they will get a diploma that says they went to school, but it's sort of considered a special education diploma, you know, with that kind of 
disclaimer. And while the intention of that is wonderful, the educators who work with them are wonderful human beings and the students are wonderful people. They haven't been always prepared to go into the full array of options after secondary school. So for instance, they might not be equipped to go to a college with what they know. You know, they may not exactly fall into the job programs that high schools can feed them into. You know, they might have skills or talents that are a little bit outside of those, but then may not also be able to get the education to prove that they have them. So I think one way that I'm trying to look at that as I work with such students is to give them experiences and certifications that will make up for the lack of a college degree or the lack of a standard high school diploma so that they can then go to prospective employers and say, okay, well, I have worked on mastering this piece of technology and I'm ready to show other people how to use it or to help them troubleshoot. And, you know, this is what I have learned. It's not part of the high school curriculum. It's not part of a college curriculum, but it will help me to work for you. And that's just an example. Or I have another student who wants to be a behaviorist and really just needs some experiences that would either approximate that goal for him or just give him the training that would then make up for the education. Sure. So just to you know think about those goals. There are some programs for people with disabilities that don't even really fit blindness. So it's just a really interesting conundrum. So that's one gap. That's a huge one. And you know, when we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you mentioned a phrase that I think is incredibly powerful that we've actually written a blog article about on our website, which is about learned helplessness. Now we were talking about it from the standpoint of sort of more of a toxic or a, an apathetic workplace. Mm -hmm. But kids are smart yeah. and they know the difference between these two things. And I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about ways in which you are going to provide tools and resources and opportunities that are outside of the IEP sort of structured world. Even though that IEP is also giving them access to resources and access to other things, the inequality of one, even if it's the perceived inequality, but the inequality of one diploma versus another can create that sense of helplessness. Mm -hmm. And when you think back on the students, not just the current students you have, but just, you know, the students that you've touched and reached and worked with in the past, do you feel like you've gotten through and passed that learned helplessness for most of them at least? This is actually a new thing for me. So okay. ask me that in a couple of years. Yeah, I will. I, I, mean, <laughs> I hope we're, I hope we continue yeah. this conversation beyond yeah. because cause that relates to the employment question that I wanted yeah. to bring back to you. I mean, learned helplessness is not just on individual students. It is on yes. the system of employment. And, you know, I think... Sometimes people with disabilities experience the job interview as sort of a nightmare in the sense of going in, interviewing, and everything is 
going well, but they kind of have this suspicion that it's not because of something that's already like in someone else's mind about disability and people's capabilities and, you know, then an employer. So there are two things, right? One is obviously there are many candidates for a position and sometimes the person with disabilities may not have as much experience as someone else. And so that is a legitimate consideration. And on the other side of it is sort of the trap of either not being able to get those experiences to catch up or an employer seeing this person kind of making unconscious uh, associations or biases, your biased assumptions, and then, you know, sort of thinking, oh, well, I can't, you know, hire that person. I couldn't work with them. They'll need too much. And so almost the learned helplessness of employers, yes. because in the education space, no matter how difficult a class is, and there are some that are really challenging, there are teachers who definitely are worried about working with people with disabilities and make that known. But ultimately, if you persist, you will get through that class, whether that other person likes it or not. And, you know, you can go to somebody higher and say, look, I'm having trouble getting through this class. And eventually it's going to have to happen because the education world, hopefully in most scenarios, is like, what can I do for you? But when you get to the employment world, it's like, what can you do for us? So it's the flip side of that. And, you know, just the idea that people with disabilities can exist on this continuum of either pity or amazement, which I've read in the disability community is like inspiration porn, it's called. Yeah, sure. But like, oh, you're so inspiring how you do all these things and you're amazing just for existing. And, you know, therefore you're up on this pedestal, but you're also out of my world. Like you are detached from me. So that using inspiration to sidestep a potential human connection. I think. Absolutely. I agree with every single thing that you said, I'm really struck by this comment you're making about moving from what can we do for you to what can you do for us? <laughs> and I would go so far and to be so bold as to say that, you know, the ADA, the landmark legislation, civil rights legislation of my time, I'm in my 40s, <laughs> is still not breaking through the barrier for employment. It's failed on the employment front. It hasn't moved employment from 1990 when it was passed to now. And that it is still the one area where it is okay because of that feeling. And even if the intention is sort of good of like, I don't think I can support this person. or I don't know if I can, that employers are still okay to discriminate. Against yeah. Someone I mean, part of the problem is that employers are not allowed to ask their questions or bring up their apprehensions. There's a good reason for that because the questions people used to get were totally awful. But, sure. you know, if they're not allowed to ask about disability and if the person with a disability doesn't then bring it up, which is really hard in an interview to have to force the conversation in that direction. And then sometimes even if they do bring it up, but, you know, if it hasn't been brought up, then the apprehensions remain. And also when you get that letter saying, we decided to go with another candidate, thanks for applying, you don't know if it was because of the disability. Right. Nobody's going to say that because they will get sued. Right. And therefore, there are a hundred other reasons that it could be. And sometimes that could be true, but sometimes it might not be. And you will never know. So that the system is not designed to move because disability has been taken out of the discussion. Yeah, yeah. This is really important. And Nimit, I want to bring you back because we work together. And Yeah, Nimit, you... I'm really sorry because I just probably scared you about like the whole rest of your working life. God. But, but, but the truth of the matter is, Nimit, you, frankly, and I appreciate it, allow 
allowed us, allowed me in particular, to ask some of those questions. I had never worked with someone who was blind before. And mm -hmm. I want to hear it from you now. Like, what was your experience coming into this particular working space with Tamman, where we were asking you questions about your service animal. We were asking you questions about the layout of the office or whatever it was where we were unsure, but you made it okay. I don't know. Like, what was that like for you? So one thing I noticed at Tamman is that you guys have a passion for accessibility that I haven't seen in any other company that I work for. Usually I don't always disclose my disability in the beginning stage of job seeking process. Hmm. I usually do it either right the day before interview or like it just depends on the situation sure. really. But when it's about asking question as like after hiring, like what can we do to make this more accessible for you. I personally find those questions to be helpful because I would rather people ask me questions than go on about their own assumptions and create actions from them. So in my personal experience, I would want people to ask me questions, but not like when they walk in the door and they see like a service animal and they would start to make assumptions about the dog or my physical visible disability so it's really a process i think there gets to a point where these questions do need to be addressed but there has to be the right time i haven't found that a problem within the tamin workplace but i have found where when i disclose that i am blind i as kristen said it's like you get either canceled or we'll call you back and nothing happens and again you don't know if that's because of your disability but i have had companies that have been very good about listening to my disclosure and acting like what can we do to make this process accessible for you like 10 so at the end of the day so much of this is about human connection and yes being able to forge that connection and trust quickly enough so that both parties can ask those questions mm -hmm. but it's really clear from our conversation today Kristen and Nimit that there's just a lot of awareness building that needs to continue to happen and we really want to continue to use a lot of different platforms, podcasts being one, webinars being one, blogs being another, wherever we can talk about this to help build awareness, because I think so much of it is rooted in assumption and ignorance, myself very much uh, at the forefront of that oftentimes, that we have to be curious, we have to ask questions, mm -hmm. and without the guides and frankly the mentors, not just to each other, but that's how we're going to learn and that's how we're going to grow and be able to bring in people with disabilities into the American workforce and the, the worldwide workforce as well. I am passionate about the fact that as more and more baby boomers retire, as more and more of them leave the workplace, deservedly so, and have this huge gulf of employment and work that has to get done, the way we're going to fill that is an untapped resource, which is 
people living with disabilities who aren't engaged in the American economy as it is. And there's work to be done in the education space. There's work to be done in the employment space. There's work to be done by employers specifically. That's that. But I really appreciate this conversation because I think it's lifting a lot of things up. Kristen, I can't leave this conversation without talking to you about being a writer. You are the first published author that we've had on the podcast, at least that I know of. And you've written two works of fiction, The Transcriber and Outside Myself. Can you talk a little bit about those two books for us? Sure. So I have a master's degree in fiction, creative writing, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to use it. And storytelling informs so much of what I'm doing because, you know, in curriculum writing, I'm hoping to tell a story, even if it's helping a student's story. And in teaching, I'm trying to find out the story. And in writing, I'm telling the story. So my first book is it's basically the equivalent of a short story, but it's a small book for adolescent emerging readers. It's published through a wonderful small press called Gemma Media, which made the Gemma Open Door series for adolescents. And Trish, who runs that press, is passionate about literacy and bringing literacy to all of those who might not have received it adequately, from adults who are learning English to adults who dropped out of high school to kids who are reluctant readers. So it's a, a press that I truly admire. And The Transcriber is a short book about a boy whose sister is blind and he is the only one who doesn't think this is a miracle or something to feel sorry about. In fact, he's usually annoyed about it and pretty irreverent. And, you know, the story I think is in some ways about how they end up being closer together by the end of the story. But in the meantime, he has a lot of irreverent observations about life as the sibling. And I thought about it because my brother had to go through tons of stuff as my sibling. And then the other book is my first full-length novel. And I would say it's probably also for adolescents and adults called Outside Myself, and it shifts between the perspectives of two characters who are both blind, and it kind of goes back and forth between pre-ADA and post-ADA, which is really interesting that we're talking about that, and just the ways things have changed, the way they've stayed the same, and these two characters and how they build a friendship with one another. I am terrible at marketing my own books, but I hope that you will check them out. They sound amazing, both of them, and... I'm really interested in reading them myself. I am not too old for YA literature, so I think that's No great. one's too old for YA literature. No, exactly. In um, fact, I think the older you get, the more maybe we need YA literature. You're here. You're here. <laughs> Absolutely. And I am fascinated. So I'm assuming, again, another assumption, but that your brother read the transcriber. Is that right? Actually, I don't know if he read it or not. Oh, okay. I just I, I kind of wonder if he didn't ever want to read it. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it wouldn't have taken him long if he did. So I never heard back about it. <laughs> got, got it. Got it. All right. I wasn't sure if he did some sort of editorializing on it. No, okay. no. This was out in the world. And that might be the problem, actually. <laughs> I didn't give him any editorial control. So <laughs> uh, that's excellent. So writer, advocate, teacher, so many things that you do now. What's on the horizon for you? What are you going to do next? I am committing more fully to teaching students. So before and during the pandemic, I was primarily working for the College Success Program, and then I was teaching one or two students part-time. And the program 
is moving to a new company, and I think that it's actually a wonderful move for the program because it's moving into a blindness specific company that's terrific but i also thought okay i just turned 40 maybe if this is my midlife crisis talking i don't know but this is <laughs> you know where i have the chance to move and maybe try something a little different so i am teaching students you know for blind students so traveling between schools in central and north jersey and i am homeschooling my oldest child my two young ones have gone back to school and I am actually looking for another part-time job to go with the teaching well, but we'll see where that happens so. yeah absolutely well so exciting to keep tabs on where you're gonna go next thanks Kristen so we're gonna move to our final segment of course it's three questions are you ready for your three questions Kristen I am so ready for my three questions Marty which living person do you most admire that is the world's hardest question, but I have to say that the person who inadvertently, without knowing me, guided me into the life of a writer was Jhumpa Lahiri, who is an author who started out her career by writing about different facets of the immigrant experience or the Indian American experience as a child of Bengali immigrants, but really also about the human experience. And she was the writer in residence when I was in college. And I was pretty set by then on being a teacher. And that is a good profession. I'm still a teacher. But up until that time, I really hadn't considered being a writer. I thought, you know, I live on the outside of a lot of literature. People aren't really going to want to know what I have to say. And so meeting her and just kind of learning about how she was a participating observer and how writing gave her that gift and also kind of centered her was very powerful for me. And I sort of generalized a little bit as I thought about the connection between the immigrant and first generation experience and the disability experience, which are obviously different, but also have some commonalities. Now she is writing in Italian and translating. And I am very badly, because I have so many other things going on, but I'm very badly learning Italian as kind of an homage and also an exploration that I'm doing with a friend. And sometimes it's not inspiration porn. It's just amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, amazing. yes, yes, I understand. <laughs> okay, we're just going for Italian now. That's incredible. Okay, so I'm very curious to see where we go with this next question. As a writer, especially, and as someone who has published works, who are your favorite heroes or heroines from fiction? Wow, that is the hardest question ever. So probably my first favorite heroine was Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables, that whole series. And that was a series I've read over and over again, even as an adult. Although I cannot help but mention that Anne's children are remarkably well behaved. That's a Don't little bit of a problem. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my kids I are wonderful, don't. but they're not like those kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so I, I, that's a slight letdown. But still, she was quite a hero and a champion for the imagination and came along at a great time in my life. Francie Nolan from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn mm. is another one. And, you know, just 
the idea of like overcoming adversity but also having it be a part of her experience was pretty magical for me i don't know steven daedalus from a portrait of the artist as a young man was really powerful for me his battles against religion and nationality and language so those were kind of my heroes coming up you know up, up as a, a young person and probably influenced my ya literature connection as well and then i have to say so the ones i'm reading right now i just reread a wrinkle in time as an adult which is wonderful i am very slowly reading moby dick and i'm sort of blown away by ishmael as the i mean if you want to talk about the participating observer ishmael is the participating observer he knows about everything just when he needs to know it it is not a book that would have been published now because it's like someone would have said herman you know you've thrown in too much stuff here but it is truly a work of art that it's going to live with me for a few years because i'm reading it incredibly slowly <laughs> so and then i guess my final thing is my son and i are reading My Side of the Mountain by Jean Greg Head George. And it is a book for kids about this boy who runs away from the city and lives literally on a mountainside inside of a hemlock tree and, you know, trains a falcon and hunts for his food. And it's incredible. And just the way it starts with him being excited about getting through a snowstorm and living in the woods makes you want to go live in the woods. So, awesome. Yeah. We could have just done a whole segment on your... Yeah, I, I will. Your, I'll come back and do we, that. We need to just do Let's that. Talk. I actually also just finished maybe about a year and a half ago, 18 months, something like that, of Wrinkle in Time as an adult and thought it was amazing. Gave it to my daughter. And then a previous guest of ours very recently, and I don't remember if he mentioned it on the podcast or not in the same space, but he's doing the exact same thing with Moby Dick. Is like working his way through it very, very slowly. And it's very interesting how parallel that was for you. So last question. What is one recommendation for a game, book, movie, podcast, TV show, anything that you happen to be engaging with now? You just gave us a bunch of books, so maybe not steer there, but go wherever you want to go. You know, I think I'll just end with the hilarious because I do go to books. You know, ah, that's, yes, that's like yes, my, my default. I'm like, hmm, game, I don't know, book, uh, movie, TV show, I don't, know, I don't know. And podcast, I sort of fell out of the podcast space when I didn't have any time anymore. But my son showed me this bizarre TikTok called the sibling anthem. And first of all, TikTok is so not my generation and I'm not. I don't <laughs> I have TikTok. Relate. He sees it on YouTube. I'm like, no, no no you're like falling into the dark side and then he showed me the sibling anthem about the oldest middle and youngest siblings and most of those generalizations about them were hilariously true so okay i'll go with that but i love it my son is in the same boat you know gets the tiktok through the youtube and it says a lot that i called it the YouTube and the, the YouTube. so <laughs> the internet <laughs> <laughs> exactly well Kristen, thank you so much i just have so enjoyed this conversation and the time that you spent with us thank you for coming on and i can't wait to keep this conversation going with you. Car, thank you you're the best and i really appreciate you as a colleague and as a friend and so thank you for joining me on this particular conversation. Thank you. It was great. I even learned a lot today. So appreciate that. That's what we're always trying to to do there. We're always trying to learn together, and that's good. So if you like what you heard today, if you heard something that you disagreed with, or maybe you have those specific statistics for us on the correlation between 
rail reading and employment, we would love to hear from you. Please engage with us. We are on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Leave us a comment. You can find Article 19 on Podbean or any of the podcast networks where you might be listening. Please rate us. Please share a review. It really means a lot to us and to help build this awareness for all of the things that we talk about in all of our conversations. In addition, if you check out Tamaninc.com, we have a brand new website that just launched. You can find the podcast there. You can sign up for our lightning groups, which we do monthly, where we talk about all sorts of intersection between the ADA, digital accessibility, and we have a lot of fun doing it. You can sign up there. And you can also sign up for our upcoming webinar series in the fall. So thank you so much for joining us today on Article 19, and we hope to continue this conversation next week. Thanks. If you like what you heard today and want to explore more about digital accessibility, inclusivity, or to schedule a time to talk with us, you can find the whole Tamman team at TamanInc.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C.com. Or follow us on social media at Tamaninc on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We'll talk to you again next time.